WHMP. This is Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away today, and we are joined in the studio by Lori Millman, who is the executive director of the Center for New Americans. We are so pleased she can be back with us in the studio, and she has with her and us today a very special person who we want you to know. So, Lori Millman, executive director of the Center for New Americans, coming up July 4th. There is an event that happens in Northampton. It is so moving, so spectacular. It has brought tears to my eyes when I've been there. Tell us what it is, where it is, and why it is. Please, Lori. Good morning, Bill, and thank you for having us here. We are looking forward to our 15th annual naturalization ceremony in Northampton, If the weather holds, fingers crossed, we will be on the lawn of the old uh, Northampton Superior Courthouse. um, On? On July 4th, Tuesday at 11 o'clock in the morning. The ceremony is really beautiful and moving, as you said. It lasts just an hour. By noon, you're already off and on your way to your barbecue. And the naturalization ceremony is presided over by... Oh, our wonderful Catherine Robertson, federal magistrate judge, Catherine Robertson, the warmest, most welcoming judge in the world. And she presides over the naturalization ceremony. What is a naturalization ceremony? So this is when the 50 people who will be there that day will be sworn in as U.S. citizens. They have taken quite a journey. They have filed a very long application, the N-400, about 22 pages, I think. They have gone for their biometrics, which is fingerprinting and photo ID. They have sat for an interview where they're asked questions having to do with U.S. history and civics and government. A test we should point out that most U.S. citizens, when they take it, don't pass. Or a lot, a a lot lot of of people do not pass. That's correct. There's also an English exam that's part of it. And then they are sworn in, which means they take an oath of allegiance. So they will recite an oath of allegiance that day um, and then receive their certificate of citizenship. I have been at that ceremony when people are sworn in, and it's hard to describe, which is why I am encouraging listeners to go if you haven't been there. And if you have been there, you're going to want to go again. Uh, The joy, it's the joy that is just so palpable. And I'm wondering if you could tell us or your impressions of that, Lori Millman? Well, you know, at the Center for New Americans, we welcome and serve immigrants. And one of the things we've noticed about the people we work with is they're very goal-oriented. So people set, um, you know, one goal at a time, you know, to learn English, to get a driver's license, to get a job, to get citizenship. And it's a journey. And they work hard. And in our role as helping people to apply and prepare, we often match people with tutors. So not everybody asks for a volunteer tutor, but people do ask for tutors. And for some people, learning the 100 questions that they could be asked is hard. In the interview. In the interview. So they'll only be asked 10 questions, but they need to know all 100. And it's hard. So many people start studying the minute they file that application. And, and they're very nervous at the interview. And, and the interview can be very cordial and friendly or can be very stiff and, and hard. Um, the interviewer is also assessing the applicant's ability to acquit themselves in English. So it's a moment of, of, of a lot of nervousness. And when they are sworn in that day, 
it is the fulfillment of a longtime dream goal, which they worked very hard for. And you're right. People have to show up that day an hour before the swearing in. They will be there three hours early. You'll see. People will start that day. They'll come. They're all dressed up. They have their family. They're, raise, they're waving flags. It is a moment of jubilation. It really is. And it's, it's a privilege to be witness to it. So, Ori Millman, we are going to spend some time in just a moment, starting in just a moment, with Gary Winter, who is one of your students at the Center for New Americans, who will be sworn in this July 4th. So pleased to have Gary with us. Take one moment, if you would, please, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with the Center for New Americans, and give us the big picture of what the organization does. Yes. And just one small adjustment. Gary was a client of ours, but his English is perfect. So he's not one of our students. Sometimes we actually do get to naturalize people who have been our students. He was a client. So we we helped him prepare his application. Um, we will later Well, it's a this good thing that on this test that I'm not asked the difference between a client <laughs> yeah, and later a student. This year we will, <laughs> later this year, we will have some of our students naturalize. And that's, that's a special too. So as I said, we welcome and serve immigrants. We have two main program components. We offer free classes in English for speakers of other languages. Those classes include civics, so we do teach the rights and responsibilities of citizenship and paying your taxes. We teach, in addition to English, digital literacy, which obviously is vital these days, um, and how to get a job in, in the U.S., and U.S. customs, how to navigate U.S. systems. And we offer free classes in um, Northampton, Amherst, and Greenfield. And because we're in Greenfield, we are one of those agencies that is now happy to welcome the Haitian migrants who have just been resettled into sh family shelters in Greenfield. And we're working closely with ServiceNet to make certain that we offer classes that we didn't anticipate offering this summer. We always offer a summer session. We will be offering classes to accommodate these people. So we teach English and we offer immigration legal services. So we help people apply for and prepare for citizenship, um, renew green cards, apply for, uh, apply for employment authorization. We apply for temporary protected status. We've done some limited asylum applications for the Afghans, TPS for Ukrainians and Haitians. Um, it's a lot. The Center for New Americans has been here for how long? 32 years. In Western Massachusetts. In Western Massachusetts. Let me turn from Lori Millman uh, to Gary Winter. Gary, congratulations. Uh, tell us about your journey, if you would, please. Thank you very much, Bill. Um, it's a pleasure to be here on this occasion. Um, Let's start with, where are you from? Jamaica. Okay, and tell us how long you've been in the United States. A little over six years. Okay. Tell us about your journey. Um, my journey is one very simple and easy one in that... I am one of 11 siblings. There were the other 10 were all here before me. So I was the only one left back in Jamaica. Were you the youngest? No, I'm not. <laughs> okay. However, they wanted me to be here more than how I wanted to be here, if you ask me. Mm. Having been here, though, over six years, I have not regretted a minute of it. I'm really interested to know, uh, and maybe there was some uh, motivation about uh, becoming a citizen 
that's above and beyond being a citizen, but what does it mean to you to be sworn in on July 4th as a U.S. citizen? It means a lot. It means a lot in that um, it gives me some authority. It gives me some rights that I did not have before. It gives me the privilege to be here sitting and talking to Bill Newman, which I truly appreciate. And I'm um, really looking forward for that day. In terms of becoming a citizen, having to take this test, to have the interview, to have a hundred questions that you have to know the answers to, to do the written application and all that, Lori described that as being a, uh, a, an experience that could make a person nervous, made me nervous listening to it. Um, is it a nerve-wracking kind of experience? Um, it it can be can be nerve wracking, but um, once you prepare, once you're prepared, it's hard for you to fail. So you won't be nervous once you're prepared. And was prep was the Center for New Americans part of your preparation? They were more than excellent in that um, they kept communicating with you throughout the period wanting to know where you are, if you are ready, if you are getting ready. And I think they did an excellent job getting you to the point of interview. You have 10 siblings here in the United States? Yes. Are, are they in western Massachusetts no, or no? No, they are in Bridgeport, most in Bridgeport. And is your family close? Too close if you ask me. (laughs) 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 Oh, goodness. Tell us a bit, if you would. uh, We were talking before we went on the air. You you work in construction? Yes, I do. Did you do that before you came to the United States? Not not at all. I did not know to hold a hammer. How did you learn? How How did did I learn? Yes. When I came here, um, my brother had a construction company. So I came right into it and started there. So one brother who was extremely helpful. He was, as I can say, more than extremely helpful. You, you, you were making mention of um, the whole process, and you said it brought tears to your eyes. It did. It does. And talking about him especially, I mean, all the others are good, but him, Stefan... He's, he's too good wow. in that when I was coming, I mentioned to him that um, might be I have to come to prepare to take my family over. And he said, are you crazy? All of you coming together. He went ahead and he bought a house, renovated it. And when we came here, he handed the key to my wife and said, if anybody have to leave, it's not you. Wow. Mm. Tell us about your, your family. You're married? I am. You have children? Three children. And how old are they? 29, 24, both of which serve in the military. In the United States military? Yes, sir. Wow. And um, I have a 16 years old. And do you live in, where do you live? I live in Springfield, Mass. And I'd be interested to know, uh, you, you were joking a bit about your family and being too too close, 
but I, I'd like to know, uh, are they going to be at the naturalization ceremony? Mm. Are they happy for you? They are extremely happy. They are. But um, they won't be there. Oh, they won't be there. But um, might be might be not in person, but their spirit will be there with me, I can tell you. Well, I, I really appreciate that. Mm. I'd like to go back to the naturalization itself and why you wanted to become a citizen. Uh, and in that regard, does this make you feel different in some ways? I mean, is it you're going to feel different on July 5th than you did on July 3rd? It, it, it does. It does. Because um, it gives you a voice. It gives you a place. And um, it makes a lot of difference, having a voice. Well, Lori, um, it, uh, this, this naturalization ceremony, the work that the Center for New Americans does, it does bring tear to my eyes, uh, tears to my eyes. I don't mean to be hyperbolic about it, but it is a really moving ceremony. I'd appreciate if you'd give us your last words. Um, you know, it's a, an entire community that brings this ceremony. We work with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and they've been good partners. You know, we asked them if clients who were, not, who were interviewing right before the 4th could be slotted into this ceremony, and they said that they, they could do that. So, um, and Gary, you just took your examination. Tuesday. He took yes, his I exam did. on Tuesday, uh, and Tuesday. we asked for him to be naturalized in front of his community so that all of us could celebrate with him and bear witness. Um, but it's a team. You know, Judge Robertson has been presiding over this ceremony for many years. She says it's her most favorite task as a judge. Of all the things she does, this is what she appreciates the most. Evelyn Harris has been singing the national anthem at this ceremony for the entire 15 years that we've done it. And we'll the, do it this year as well? She will do it this year. The Amherst Boy Scout Troop 504 will serve as color guard. The League of Women Voters Northampton chapter will be on hand to register people to vote. Um, the trial court, the executive office of the trial court, hosts us at the court. And they're as excited as we do. They come in and they work on their day off. It's, it's a community, and there are volunteers who will set up all the chairs and take them down. There'll be music, there'll be food. Um, Atkins Farms donates some of the food. We, we throw a giant party, and the community usually comes. It, it makes everybody feel good. And it, as people have said, it sort of centers you a little. You, as a, as a citizen, may have some doubts about the direction sometimes that the government is taking. And then you see all these people who really are choosing this, and they're seeing something that helps natural-born citizens reorient that maybe we can work together to put ourselves back on the path that we were meant to be on. From countries across the globe. Across, there, are, there are 50 people being sworn in from 25 different countries all across the globe. Australia, Bhutan, Cambodia, Eritrea, India, Jamaica, uh, Mexico, Niger, Nigeria, Pakistan, Philippines. I mean, across the globe. And what time is the ceremony? 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock on July the courthouse 4th. lawn, on the July courthouse 4th. Lawn. Yeah. Lori Millman, thank you so much for coming in. Gary Winter, congratulations. It is a pleasure. It is an honor to have met you today. Thank you, sir. I feel the same. Down the way where the nights are gay And the sun shines daily on the mountaintop 
I took a trip on a sailing ship, and when I reached Jamaica, I made a stop. But I'm sad to say I'm on my way. Won't be back for many a day. My heart is down, my head is turning around. I had to leave a little girl in Kingston. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads. For the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. What is Brockton, Massachusetts known for? For me, Brockton means a good night's sleep because Brockton is where they make therapeutic mattresses. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you here. Therapeutic, the lesser known mattress made in Massachusetts. Does that alone mean they're any good? It doesn't, but they are good. In fact, they're great. On par with famous name mattresses that cost a lot more. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. A lot of people have purchased a therapeutic mattress at Talon Furniture over the years, at least a thousand, and they're all sleeping well. A therapeutic mattress really is as good as the famous name mattress. And they're made by fellow base daters. In the grand scheme of the global mattress economy, Therapeutic is close to home. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. What I really love is a Therapeutic mattress is clean. No toxic chemicals or off-gassing. I've walked the factory floor. I've seen how they're made. Talon Furniture, home of Therapeutic, just down the hill from Amherst College in the sleepy part of town. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday? Kohl's Building Supply? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Kohl's Building Supply in North Amherst provides the quality materials for any home improvement project. Visit the Kitchen Design Showroom, the Benjamin Moore Paint Store, or their Flooring Showroom. You'll find a caring team with the knowledge and expertise to answer all your questions. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. July 4th is, as we all know, just around the corner. And we have with us today in the studio, Lori Sanders and Elizabeth Sharp. They are the co-directors of Historic Northampton. And Historic Northampton is going to have an event that we want you to know about. It will not conflict with the naturalization ceremonies because although it is a July 4th event, it will actually occur on July 2nd. So let me, and if the rain date would be July 3rd, this is all really planned out. Historic Northampton has an event that has been ongoing. I think this is the third event. There was an interruption for COVID, but it too is a really moving event. So let me turn to Laurie Sanders, co-director of Historic Northampton. Tell us what the event is. Well, good morning, Bill, and thank, thank you for having us. The event is happening also, it's important to note, at 11.30 a.m. Uh, on July 2nd. On July 2nd. At? at On the grounds of Historic Northampton, which is, for many people, opposite uh, the post office in Northampton, so 46 Bridge Street. And we'll have a large, beautiful tent, uh, 200 chairs. People are encouraged to bring their own chair, too. 
So this is a public reading. There are about 40 of these events called Reading Frederick Douglass Together um, happening around the Commonwealth, and our site is, is one of those. Sponsored by? Sponsored by Mass Humanities and Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. Reading Frederick Douglass. Everyone is reading a particular speech by Frederick Douglass. Maybe we could turn to your co-director, Elizabeth Sharp, Betsy Sharp. Tell us what this is, reading Frederick Douglass, his speech given when and where, and why does Mass Humanities encourage and allow and uh, promote reading this speech? The name of the speech... The name of the speech is What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, and it is a speech that Frederick Douglass gave in Rochester, New York in 1852. He was invited by the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society to give this speech. In fact, he was invited to give it on July 4th, and he uh, knows knew that July 4th was a day often when slave auctions were held, and so he said that he would give it on July 5th. So it's a speech that um, lends itself well to people um, each speaking a paragraph of it. So on Sunday, there'll be 53 paragraphs, and we invite people to come step up, and we'll give them a script and have them read a paragraph. Okay. Tell us a bit more about this. It's called a community read. It is, yes. in fact, a community read. Correct. No one's there with a, uh, a position or a, 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 I mean, obviously Representative Sabadosa uh, is sponsoring this event along with many others. Uh, but it's a community event. And uh, just take another moment, if you would, to describe how that works, how we as a community read one after another after another to put together this composite of this extraordinary speech. Very powerful speech. There'll be a moderator. The moderator is Sarah Patterson. She's a professor of English at UMass Amherst. And she will be the moderator. She'll give a brief introduction. Everyone who comes will be handed a script. And you'll be invited to read a paragraph. Uh, what happens is... Um, on our lawn, there'll be, as Laurie said, 200 chairs set up, and people will assemble. If you're giving, if you're reading a paragraph, then you line up at you know, pretty much at your time, and you step to the microphone and you read it, and then the next person steps up and read the next one. And what is so powerful is that so many different voices are reading the speech children, adults, um, people from all over the world. It's very powerful. And everyone in the audience is also reading the script. So they're all um, listeners and participants in it. I would be interested to know how Historic Northampton became involved in this community read of Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. How did Historic Northampton become involved with this, uh, Lord? Well, in terms of continuing kind of with the logistics in terms of, and then maybe we can segue also to the content of, uh, of the speech and why all of our America communities are, are also reading it. Um, but Mass Humanities happens to be uh, our tenant in one of our buildings. And so a few years ago when, like other states, this is a speech that is perhaps Douglas's most famous speech 
and it's used in high school classrooms and colleges in, in all kinds of versions, some abridged, some full length. Anyway, um, with, with this, Mass Humanities began, began the process. And so we were one of the first 14 sites in the Commonwealth to host. And so it was just a natural partnership. And then it's just continued and it's just expanded across, across the state. So there, did I hear you correctly? There are forty read community reads. I, actually, there's forty one, and tomorrow, since Monty Belmonte is a famous name from this uh, station, he's hosting a reading on the fabulous four one three at three o'clock on on public radio. Well, good for Monty. Really, <laughs> no, seriously, we really, really appreciate. Anyway, and that. he's got a number of different people who are also a, a little bit like ours, but a much smaller group who are reading excerpts from the speech. Oh, really? Yeah. Very, very powerful. I, I am interested to know why this speech, and I was thinking about this last night as I was reaching it, as I was reading it and rereading it again, and I'd ask you both, uh, uh, Elizabeth Sharp and Laurie Sanders, why is this speech so powerful so many years later? Laurie Sanders? <laughs> well, you know, one of, one of the parts that... I think makes the speech so powerful is that Douglas soon after I mean within just a few years of him escaping from slavery he becomes on the national stage and and is traveling he he first uh, arrives here in in Northampton in Florence in 1844 just 6 years after he escapes from slavery and so um, this is 14 years later um, after after he escapes from slavery. And, and the arc of the speech is, at first, he describes all of the fundamental pieces of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and, and kind of the liberty and freedom and what that means, and looks back at the struggle, and then turns it and looks at this large population in America, which, which for the 4th of July those values that are celebrated are not at all what 14%, 3 million slaves in America have. Yeah, um, at that time when he gave the speech, there were 3.2 million enslaved people in the United States, and that represents 14% of the United States population. And so this is really at the point where this is right after the Fugitive Slave Act, which is 1850, and so he's giving this very powerful speech. If I could just read one of the most important one of the most important lines of it, I would appreciate it. Which kind of summarizes it? He says, "What to the American slave is the is your Fourth of July?" I like that. I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty of which he is the constant victim. It is an angry speech yes. in some ways. Mm -hmm. It is also a speech that is filled with love and hope. And that's the interesting, one of the interesting uh, uh, di dichotomies of the speech. And, and I think it's, it's, this, it's this meshing of hope with genuine anger at how people could treat other people like this and enslave them. And it, it's, it's really quite, quite an extraordinary piece of oratory and writing. It's, and that's why 
it is so famous, and I think why it resonates. What was the year of the speech, 1852? 52. And here we are a century and a half or more later, and it still moves you. Mm -hmm. It's really, really amazing. Tell us one more time, if you would, please, Elizabeth Sharp, when and where this is, the community. And anyone can still come. You can just come. You want to read. You get online. You'll be given given a paragraph, and you can read, and you can be part of this really, really moving community event. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's July 2nd, which is Sunday, at 1130 on the grounds of Historic Northampton, which is at 46 Bridge Street in Northampton, right behind the big yellow house with the green shutters. Otherwise known as across from the post office. Across from the post office, <laughs> Because that's yes. how we identify, okay. how we get there. <laughs> that's right. There's plenty of room on the grounds. Please don't bring your dog unless it's a certified service dog. Um, we'll have chairs. We'll have water. You're welcome to bring your own chair. Sometimes that's more comfortable. We'll have a PA system, so it'll all be brought. It'll all be and, easy and, to hear. And it's really nice. We have two microphones, so it's seamless. It's just right. It moves right along. One right after the next. And for those people who are interested in in being one of the public readers you receive a speech that sh- highlights which paragraph is yours. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy, and there's, it's, the last time we did it, it was seamless, and as Betty said, it was, it's really moving and powerful because 1852, but there's so many lines that I think all of us um, see the meaningfulness of right now in the present. And what I find interesting is people stay afterwards and just talk. And it's really very nice to get to meet all kinds of members of the community you might not have met. The reading itself takes about how long? About 45 minutes. Yeah. So the whole program will be about an hour. Mm-hmm. Betty Sharp, Elizabeth Sharp, Lori Sanders, co-directors of Historic Northampton. I want to thank you so much for doing this. I, listeners, if you haven't been to this, you want to go. You really want to go. It's 45 minutes, give or take, for the reading, an hour for the event. It is an hour you will treasure. Thank you both so very much. Thank you. Thank you. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. UMass Amherst will pay the town approximately $5.5 million under the terms of a new contract to provide coverage for the nearly 30,000 students attending the university. Included in the strategic partnership deal is $700,000 annually for emergency medical and fire services and $200,000 a year for the cost of educating children of employees who live in tax-exempt housing. The deal will also make retroactive payments to the town going back to July 2022. Amherst Town officials are fighting back against accusations there was racial bias in the distribution of ARPA funds. The Black Business Association of the Amherst area contends there has not been fairness in how the money has been distributed. The group spoke at a Monday night council meeting saying they were embarrassed by how the town discriminates against black-owned businesses. Town manager Paul Bachelman denied the accusations, providing charts showing that 55% of small business grants went to black, indigenous, and people of color-owned businesses.
Three New York men are facing multiple charges following two car chases in New Hampshire and Greenfield after an alleged armed robbery incident yesterday in Keene. The pursuit began around 8.30 a.m. Officers located suspects on Route 9 and a car chase began at speeds of up to 100 miles per hour. Massachusetts State Police located the vehicle on I-91 in Greenfield where a second chase began. Troopers ahead of the chase placed three deflation devices and they were hit by the suspect's vehicle. The vehicle was found near GCC. All three suspects were found in the woods with the help of the canine unit and will be in Greenfield District Court. Mixture of sun and clouds today, mostly dry, just the chance for a widely scattered shower this afternoon, a high of 80 to 84. Scattered clouds dry tonight. Evening temperatures in the 70s, an overnight low of 58 to 64. Sun cloud mixed tomorrow, a high of 84 to 88. Looks like showers are back second half of the day on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La Corte Suprema se está preparando para decidir algunos de sus casos más importantes del periodo. Al Tribunal Superior le quedan 10 opiniones para publicar durante la próxima semana antes de que los jueces comiencen sus vacaciones de verano. Como es típico, las últimas opiniones que se publicarán cubren algunos de los temas más polémicos que la Corte ha enfrentado con este término, incluida la acción afirmativa, los préstamos estudiantiles y los derechos de los homosexuales. La supervivencia de la acción afirmativa en la educación superior es el tema de dos casos relacionados, uno que involucra a Harvard y el otro a la Universidad de Carolina del Norte. La administración de Biden ha dicho que deshacerse de las admisiones universitarias conscientes de la raza tendría un efecto desestabilizador que haría que las filas de estudiantes negros y latinos cayeran en picado en las escuelas más selectivas del país. Los jueces también decidirán el destino del plan del presidente Joe Biden para eliminar o reducir los préstamos estudiantiles de millones de estadounidenses. Cuando el tribunal escuchó los argumentos del caso en febrero, no parecía probable que el plan sobreviviera, aunque es posible que los jueces decidan que los demandantes no tenían derecho a demandar y que el plan aún puede seguir adelante. Los pagos de préstamos que han sido suspendidos desde el comienzo de la pandemia de coronavirus hace tres años se reanudarán este verano. Por otra parte, el tribunal aún no ha decidido un choque entre los derechos de los homosexuales y los derechos religiosos. Y a medida que se acelera la temporada de elecciones, la Corte Suprema aún no ha dicho qué hará en un caso sobre el poder de las legislaturas estatales para dictar reglas para las elecciones presidenciales y del Congreso sin ser revisado por los tribunales estatales. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega. Y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. This is our usual Thursday Have Faith segment, and we had scheduled for now, and I hope to have on the radio with us in just a few moments, a representative from the Freedom From Religion Foundation. This is because we had this idea that we have religious leaders on the show every Thursday to talk on this segment, Have Faith. And which is the uh, successor to our Reverend and the Rabbi segment. And, well, 
Buzz had the idea, and he said, well, what about uh, atheists and agnostics? Uh, shouldn't they have some presence, some ability to be part of this as well? And uh, I thought that was a really good idea, so we had scheduled for today, and I hope we will be joined by the president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And I really want to get the uh, perspective of that organization. I've been uh, uh, impacted, I think that's the neutral word, uh, by the ads from Ron Reagan uh, Jr., who is uh, or uh, Ronald Reagan's son, who as a spokesperson from the Freedom From Religion Foundation, says, I am, uh, I, am, I am who I am, and I am not afraid of burning in hell. It's a very powerful ad. Always on MSNBC, I feel like. Every time I watch them, those commercials always show up. It's ah, Dan, by the way. And Dan, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, Buzz Eisenberg is off today. Uh, I... I would like to take a minute and get your reaction, Dan, to mm. uh, the first two segments we had on the show today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the folks from Historic Northampton and, the, and from the Center for New Americans. Uh, two very moving ceremonies happening in uh, our community this weekend on July 2nd at Historic Northampton. I'm sorry, July, uh, yes, July 2nd at Historic Northampton, July 4th on the courthouse lawn, the naturalization ceremony. Guess you, what, Bill? It's what? your lucky day. It is? I have done both. You have. I have. I was, uh, like you mentioned recently on the show, I was born abroad. So I have actually gone through the entire immigration process. Well, tell us about that. From Brazil? From Brazil, yeah. Um, Well, the uh, hard part was done when I was a child by my parents. So that was uh, pretty nice to do um, because I had to do nothing. Um, But um, when Obama ran for re-election... I said, you know what, I, I, my green card was expiring. And I also realized, hey, at some point I want to vote in these elections. So in 2012, or maybe the end of 2011, I finally filed my uh, citizenship papers. So you were a citizen as a child, but then no, you had no, to... No, 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 no. The early immigration papers is your green card. Oh. So that was done by my parents. I didn't actually fill that out. That's the hard part, uh, that stuff, because you're kind of moving from one visa, uh, which allowed my parents to come in here, including myself, and then you've got to convert that uh, into a green card, which means you are a permanent resident of America, but you cannot serve in juries, you cannot vote, and I think that's it. Um, and you can't really be out of the country for more than six months. That was the rule back then. Um, so really what it's saying is you're allowed to live here and you get all and the you, rights. And you are subject, actually, to deportation of, in various ways. That in various a, ways, yes. A, a citizen a lawyer, could, yes. Could, could, not, could, could not, not be, be de- deported or deprived of your citizenship. But That is true. Yeah, that is true. You could, If you are arrested... Uh, on any charge, I think uh, there's just likely more of a felony than a misdemeanor back then. But you did face the possibility of losing your uh, green card status, your your permanent resident status, and then being subject to deportation back to your country. So um, did you go through a naturalization ceremony? I did. Yeah, where? In Boston. In Boston. Yeah. At the near Faneuil Hall. That's where I went. Yeah. In 2012. And yeah. d- did Boston make it a community celebration? Yeah, no, no, not so no, much. Not so, I mean, it's it's tougher, you know. It's like, hey, I live in Everett, and, and there was a lot of communities. It's a lot like here, but I feel like this one's smaller, more intimate, 
and you know you get somebody who come here come here to the radio station and talk about the actual naturalization ceremony. It was really nice. Um, I also helped my mom go through that same process when I was going through citizenship, but she did her swearing in, I think in like Worcester. I don't remember. So we, it was complicated, but she did hers in Worcester. I was living in Everett. So I did mine's in Boston near Faneuil Hall and it was beautiful. It was beautiful. They have a, a Congress person come by and it was, it was, it was a very nice ceremony. Um, and moving, and also kind of, you're making this choice, you're making this leap um, at that time, and I got, that was the first election I've ever voted in, so that was nice, too. A memorable event for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. My uh, mom and my brothers came to visit, too, so that was nice. Um, yeah, it was it was really special, and nice community um, out there. A lot of immigrants, as you can imagine, in Boston. How, uh, how many people were, how many people were Several hundred. I think several hundred. Yeah, I would say a couple hundred. Yeah, it was maybe two, three hundred people. It fits a lot more than I think the, the 50 or so here. But this one creates a small community that is, pre, is pretty, it's beautiful, it's outside. It, it seems really exciting, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and it kind of brings the community together. You know, we had somebody from Jamaica here. Um, but, you know, you can get from all around uh, Western Mass, and you see that people from all around the world come live in rural Massachusetts. Yeah, Lori, Mi Mass. Lori yeah. Millman, executive director of the Center for New Americans, said that uh, uh, 50 people from 25 different countries will be sworn in on the courthouse lawn at the ceremony on the courthouse lawn this July 4th. Mm -hmm. And th that's, that is a, a international community, community that yeah. is part of this community. That's what gives this country hope. I can see, you know, um, people can come, come from all around the world and want to come and they want to join and be part of America. And then they're willing to swear in. I think that's still, uh, something America's got going for it, despite all the troubles we have domestically. Um, you could tell by the, uh, the person's face that they're really excited to do this. And uh, it, they will feel different, and yet their life will go on as it had been going on. And so you can kind of feel like they've made a commitment now to the country. And uh, I think it's one of Americans' enduring strength, uh, I can see. Just from the immigrants you've had on from the from the uh, ceremony, for the, yeah, for the center. For the Center for New Americans. I, yeah. I, I tell you, I am struck, and I have been struck in years past, uh, by th this, this uh, conflict, conflicting feelings that I've had. Because on one Tell hand... Um, What's conflicting you, Newman? Well, what conf the conflict is all the things that I think of in the United States and how we are failing to meet our ideals and the challenges, and that's a pretty euphemistic word, that we face with regard to trying to preserve... Uh, democracy in the United States, and at the same time, here are people who see this country and feel compared to the countries they have come from, in many instances, is a beacon of hope uh, compared to where they have been. Mm. And I think that that's, that's a realization that is worth actually uh, savoring. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. I, I agree. I think that's what the calculation that a lot of people are making. Um, there's a lot of oppression uh, abroad, too. You know, uh, no matter what issues we have going on here, it sometimes pales in comparison sometimes to the struggles that people endure uh, in other countries. Um, 
It can be rather difficult. And and to be honest, the economic opportunities that I think America affords people relative to the opportunities they had back in their home country, um, I think it's... Um, yeah, it's it's pretty special, but you're right. It does kind of feel conflicting sometimes. I can imagine. As an American, how do you feel about that conflict? I mean, it it might it, it makes it a complicated story. It does. Excuse me. One that we're going to pick up right after this break. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our reflections on July 4th, Dan Torres and I, and I'd like to share what has been my experience in being a reader at the Historic Northampton's uh, presentation and community read of Frederick Douglass's most famous speech, What to the Slave It Means the 4th of July. And I, I, was, I, I didn't know what it would be like when I first went, and this has been done now, I think, for some three years, uh, it, I, I was so moved. Um, and uh, What uh, moved you, Bill? Well, a couple of things. One is that the manner of the presentation is it's one person reading after the other, after the other, and there are two mics, so one person reads, they finish the paragraph, the next person reads, the next person reads, and it really does come off as a community event where everyone 
is involved in this uh, uh, collective appreciation of this extraordinary declaration of freedom. Mm. Um, and it is in some ways an angry speech because Frederick Douglass was enslaved mm -hmm. and he expresses the pain of being an enslaved person. Um, at the other, on the other hand, well, or that's no, no, not quite right. At the same time, mm -hmm. he um, uh, expresses um, uh, this uh, sense of humanity and ability to say, we are all people. And it comes through in this speech. There's nothing, there's nothing uh, saccharine about it. It's mm -hmm. very direct. It's very powerful. And, you know, 100 and what the speech was said, given in 1852. 170 here, something years. And here we are all these years later. And it is still really powerful. And mm. it's really powerful, I think, when read as a community. Yeah, and it's the full version of it. It's the one I went to at the Amherst Bang Center uh, a few years now. It must have been before COVID. Um, yeah, I think I feel the same way. You're right. I, I think it's there is, I guess, parts of it that um, are pretty dark, we can say. And then there's also a hopeful side to it. And then there's really a fascinating uh, dichotomy. I think that's the, the viewpoint that it, it isn't all beautiful and rosy on one end. Uh, there's a dark side, there's an underbelly to it, but I feel like it's in parts hopeful as well. I think that's what you're getting at. And I think there is a, a sense of hope, yet a deep darkness of oppression and violence and, and all the things that I think, you know, he experienced as a slave, as, as a former slave, and then also got to see the freedom, right, for a few years after that. Yeah, so but, 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 it, but it, it's, yes, but it's freedom within the context of a country that is condoning and promoting slavery. So mm. you know, he very much feels the ability and his his ability to be freer mm -hmm. than the the the, the than it, those who are still enslaved. Yeah, and and interestingly, a, a lot of other countries in the earlier part of the nineteenth century had already abolished slavery. Um, so America was a bit late to the game. It wasn't the last one. That would be Brazil. That'd be the last one here in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. The last to abolish slavery? 1888. Yeah, 1888. And they didn't do it really through a civil war. It was through an edict. So, um, yeah. So where, where, where were slaves in Brazil brought, brought to, to uh, your Brazil, country? by far, was the, the biggest slave transportation in the world. Uh, they, uh, from, the number from of people slaves. from Africa? Oh, yeah. Angola, mainly. They were taken, the Portuguese started that early and they brought in the most amount of uh, African slaves anywhere, uh, ever. It was almost 40% of all slaves ended up in Brazil, working in the sugarcane uh, areas in the northeast of Brazil. Yes. I, so, I, by far. I then, even more than America, far more. I didn't know that. There, there, yeah. is, there is a part in Douglas's speech where he references that uh, and says, uh, compare this country to other countries. And I think that for some people hearing that, they'd say, well, um, aren't we better than other countries? But in fact, leaving uh, your, your country of yeah. origin, Brazil, aside yeah. for a moment, yeah. in fact, the United States was very late in yeah. coming to abolish slavery. Yeah, yeah. 18, I mean, even Mexico had done it before. 
You know, there was a sense of what freedom was in, in the early part of, uh, you know, even in the 17th century it started, but by the 19th century, uh, so you're talking 1800s, a lot of countries had already abolished slavery. Um, America was late um, to it. Um, you know, it's so funny we're talking about this because I just finished a book on Millard Fillmore of all, of all presidents. Um, on, on who? <laughs> I know you're going to say that, and we only have a minute, so I think it's terrible that I just mentioned it. <laughs> but I just finished it yesterday, and uh, he was a president of the United States. Um, who we, that There was a reference here to the 1850 um compromise, which also was that there was a Fugitive Slave Act and how he enforced it and he was brutal and essentially tarnished, you know, his his presidency. And it, you, you talk about the conflict and the violence and there were a lot of things leading up to the Civil War. Um, yeah, it, it's the history is is very difficult and tough to read, but I think it's important. And I'm, I'm sad. This is my last more comment here. I'm sad that we more Americans don't know their own history. What you said here earlier on the show, that a lot of people can't pass the U.S citizenship test i mean that can't be serious you can't be honest with me about that because that's terrible bill that's not good because the test maybe because i love history it shouldn't be that hard to know this is really some basic stuff about u.s history so i'll leave it at that we do leave it at that dan torres pleasure chatting with you really appreciate it and i really appreciate of course historic northampton presenting the frederick Douglass speech on july 2nd and monty of course having it on his show as well thank you all for being with us on talk the talk This is Talk the Talk. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion WHMP animals and Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. We begin with the haze from Canadian wildfires that's quickly spreading across the country. CBS meteorologist David Parkinson. We have unhealthy air that stretches all the way actually from upstate New York and places like Rochester down through Pennsylvania and all the way down into the south into the Piedmont Triad and Greensboro. Then the bad air actually extends all the way to potentially as far west as Des Moines and St. Louis. Chicago, Detroit and Washington, D.C. have the world's worst air quality this morning. The heat is adding to the uncomfortability factor with the humidity 
considered. It'll feel like it's 115 in New Orleans today. 13 deaths in Texas are blamed on the heat. And chaos continues to reign at the airports. There have been more than 40,000 flight cancellations and delays since Saturday. We're already up to more than 1,600 in the U.S. today. Correspondent Chris Van Cleve is at the airport in Phoenix. Today is going to be a big test as the 4th of July travel season is really ramping up. The FAA says today will be the highest number of scheduled flights for the holiday, some 52,000 plus. And you can bet with all of these disruptions, every seat's going to be full. The Supreme Court could issue several important decisions today, among them cases brought against Harvard and the University of North Carolina over who gets admitted and who doesn't. Loyola Law Professor Lori Levinson. If the Supreme Court does what people expect them to do, which is overturn affirmative action, that will pose an incredible challenge for colleges across the nation as they try and struggle to find a way to bring diversity into their classes. The U.S. economy grew at a much stronger than expected rate in the first quarter. Bank rates, Mark Hamrick. First quarter GDP got a sizable upgrade, boosted by consumer spending. The revision puts annualized growth in the first three months of this year at 2%, compared to the previous estimate of 1.3%. Spending rose 4% to the highest quarterly pace since the second quarter of 2021. When it comes to pride in country, not so many Americans are feeling passionately about it ahead of the 4th of July. Numbers from Gallup find 39% of U.S. adults are extremely proud to be American. It's about unchanged from last year's record low. Was it something she said? Why, you stuck-up, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder! Princess Leia's dress from the original Star Wars movie pulled from the auction block after bringing in a top bid of $975 million. That's short of the seller's minimum. This is CBS News. Find great hires fast with Indeed. Their end-to-end hiring solution makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. But right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. UMass Amherst will pay the town approximately $5.5 million under the terms of a new contract to provide coverage for the nearly 30,000 students attending the university. Included in the strategic partnership deal is $700,000 annually for emergency medical and fire services and $200,000 a year for the cost of educating children of employees who live in tax-exempt housing. The deal will also make retroactive payments to the town going back to July 2022. 
Amherstown officials are fighting back against accusations there was racial bias in the distribution of ARPA funds. The Black Business Association of the Amherst area contends there has not been fairness in how the money has been distributed. The group spoke at a Monday night council meeting saying they were embarrassed by how the town discriminates against black-owned businesses. Town manager Paul Bachelman denied the accusations, providing charts showing that 55% of small business grants went to black, indigenous, and people of color-owned businesses. Three New York men are facing multiple charges following two car chases in New Hampshire and Greenfield after an alleged armed robbery incident yesterday in Keene. The pursuit began around 8.30 a.m. Officers located suspects on Route 9 and a car chase began at speeds of up to 100 miles per hour. Massachusetts State Police located the vehicle on I-91 in Greenfield where a second chase began. Troopers ahead of the chase placed three deflation devices and they were hit by the suspect's vehicle. The vehicle was found near GCC. All three suspects were found in the woods with the help of the canine unit and will be in Greenfield District Court. Mixture of sun and clouds today, mostly dry, just the chance for a widely scattered shower this afternoon, a high of 80 to 84. Scattered clouds dry tonight, evening temperatures in the 70s, an overnight low of 58 to 64. Sun cloud mixed tomorrow, the high of 84 to 88. Looks like showers are back second half of the day on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today. This is our weekly segment with Brian Adams. Brian is Professor Emeritus of Environmental Studies at Greenfield Community College, where he taught for some 20 years. He is the author of some three novels based with, on environmental themes. He is expert on an environment and he brings with him to the show every week a really interesting and knowledgeable guest about an aspect of our environment that we think he thinks you should know about and i couldn't be happier that brian has with him today a very very special guest so brian adams let me turn the microphone over to you please uh thank you bill and happy summer to everyone and i hope our guests have a chance sometime this summer to head to the ocean. Um, I'm fortunate enough to spend a week on the Cape every August. My children come from all over. It's a wonderful week. And one thing that makes it so wonderful is we generally go on a whale watch. And it if you if you haven't done a whale watch, listeners, you've got to do it. I mean, just, you know, it's homework before you die. You've got to get out to Gloucester or Provincetown or Hyannis or somewhere on the Cape and get out there because it is an unbelievable experience. Um, and we have all sorts of very uh, amazing marine mammals out there on the Cape, from seals, harbor seals and gray seals, to dolphins, to all sorts of whales, many of which are endangered. And uh, good things happen to, I'm sorry, bad things happen to good animals. <laughs> and good things happen to bad animals. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> bad things happen to good animals. And there are entanglements, there are strandings of those wonderful marine mammals. And we are so fortunate today to have with us, uh, Skyping from the Cape, um, Brian Sharp. Brian is the Director of Marine Mammal Rescue and Research for the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, absolutely. Good morning, Brian, and good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. So it seems like every kid's fantasy, right? I mean, what do you do when? What do you want to do when you grow up? I want to save baby seals. I want to disentangle whales. 
Uh, and you do this. You are the director of marine mammal rescue. You've rescued all sorts of manatees, sea turtles, whales, dolphins, porpoises. How did you get into this job? Oh, that's a great question. And through a non-traditional route, um, I went to school, uh, Virginia Tech, and was an animal science major. So my background was in livestock, um, farming, basically. Um, had the opportunity to move to Florida, uh, work with marine mammals. Um, eventually, my career took me over to Florida Fish and Wildlife. So I was one of their manatee biologists. And the interesting thing was, is all that I learned through, um, through being able to do livestock um, management and herding really pays off when you're uh, dealing with marine mammals. You're dealing with very large animals, and uh, so it, it all paid off. Uh, eventually, the summers in Florida became too hot for working outside for me, so I uh, escaped to Cape Cod almost 20 years ago. Hold on, escape? Doing... You escaped to Cape Cod? I'm not quite sure that's escaped the right word. Escaped to Cape Cod, yeah. <laughs> you escaped from Florida early. That's what you're telling us. <laughs> that's it. Uh, yeah. Like I said, in the summertime in Florida, doing field work, and uh, yeah, it could be hot. So uh, yeah, no, I've been uh, on Cape doing stranding response for uh, uh, actually just past 20 years. So um, you are one of the very few people out there who are actually able to have the permit to disentangle whales uh, within American waters. So tell us about how whales become entangled. What, what does that mean? And once they're entangled, how the heck do you disentangle them? That's a great question. And um, any marine animal can become entangled in, um, a lot of times people know of uh, debris, it's in the water, but what we see uh, the most of is entanglement in fishing gear. So as animals are swimming by, whether it's a sea turtle, as sea turtles are starting to come back into the waters of Massachusetts this time of year to seals, uh, Occasionally dolphins, but but not that frequently. But then, as you mentioned, large whales. As animals are swimming through the area, uh, they become entangled in the lines that attach the traps or pots to those buoys. Um, natural reaction is to try to get away from it, roll away, and that is how an entanglement starts. Um, and it can be is very deadly. Animals can um, can will have these entanglements for weeks to months, um, sometimes even years. Uh, and that whole time, it's uh, affecting that animal, how it feeds, how it travels. Um, so the effects can be great. Um, and so there's teams spread up all uh, up and down the East Coast of US, Canada, and then also internationally. We work with the International Whaling Commission to provide training for uh, people in other countries. Actually, uh, on Cape right now, um, we have uh, two trainees from Kenya. They finished uh, a week doing stranding training with us, and now they're up at, in Provincetown at the Center for Coastal Studies doing whale disentanglement training with their partners at the Center for Coastal Studies. Well, that's, that's so impressive. So it's an international effort to save what is a truly remarkable um, creature, which, which, which are the whales. How do you do the disentanglement? Uh, that's a great question. So during part of my career, I worked at the Center for Coastal Studies, and so that's where I um, learned to do whale disentanglement. Um, and so that's part of uh, how that developed. And the process is, um, you know, whether it's a seal, whether it's a whale, whether it's a turtle, is trying to gain control of the entangling gear, the line that is trailing behind the animal, um, being able to handle that, and then being able to methodically um, and carefully remove those lines in such a way so that 
the fewest number of cuts will allow the animals to survive. Uh, when I moved on from the Center for Coastal Studies to my current position now at IFAL, I was able to take those skills and now working with our veterinary team here, one of the things that we look at are other ways to do what's called medical intervention with large whales. So in cases where the disentanglement team at the center may have a very difficult case, uh, animal that has wraps around the head, um, we have a specially designed system here. Uh, it's one of only um, a couple in the world that can deliver sedatives to a large whale. Um, or antibiotics. Um, we actually used the system back in 2020 to deliver antibiotics to a right whale calf that was struck off the coast of Florida. Um, it was struck at, at only a, a week or so of age. And and you're so you're out on a boat. Uh, how how do you administer this antibiotic or sedative? Is it like a harpoon or something? Uh, no, it's it's through a dart. It's a specially made dart. Um, due to the size of whales, it requires a large volume. Um, so it is a very large dart um, to hold the highly concentrated drugs. And so we actually have to be very careful when we're on the boat. Um, we have a special splash box that we built that we can reach in and using protective gloves, <clears throat> load the darts. Um, because these drugs are so highly concentrated, even getting it on our skin, um, or especially on the eyes or any other mucous membrane, um, it would have very quick effects. So we have to be incredibly careful with these drugs when we're using them. And then the dart is um, is fired uh, from a distance of about 40 feet uh, away from the animal. Um, so requires very careful coordination, uh, trying to get a response vessel up in the right position to be able to dart the whale. Dan, uh, this is Dan. I do have a question. I want to know about the whale population off the Cape of yeah. uh, Massachusetts here. And... I, I have taken uh, this boat ride to go take some photographs of the whales, and I realized now maybe in recent years that there's this uh, refund policy in case I don't see any whales. So what's happening to the whale population off the Cape of, of Massachusetts? Well, they've always had that. Um, uh, the whale watch operators, at least since I've been on the Cape, I've always heard that they have that. Um, and, and realize that, that you know, whales are dynamic animals. They, they go to where the food is. Um, we know this area is changing and it changes even within the season. So, you know, you might be one of the lucky ones who's out there in May when the, uh, April, May, when the whale watch is first starting off, um, whales might be up on Stellwagen, but then all it takes is a slight shift of food resource and suddenly the whales are off of Chatham, which makes it hard for the boats out of P-Town to get all the way down there. And, so, and where do they all go? Depends to the season. Where okay. do they go? Do they go north? Do they go south? Where do they go? Depends on the whale species. So for humpback whales, which is typically what people uh, see most when they're out on whale watch vessels, it's this is the northernmost part, or at least the whales that come into this area. This is pretty much around where they'll be. There'll be some that'll head up to Nova Scotia, but this is kind of the northern end of their migration. Right whales, which uh, your listeners are, are probably very familiar with uh, being here in Massachusetts, they'll continue on. And so they'll actually um, head up. They were here end of March, April, when their food resource was the highest. And then they started, as that food resource started uh, waning, they started that trip up. And so now they're the majority of the right whales are found up in the Gulf of St. Lawrence in Canada. Um, Brian, let's continue talking about right, right whales. Brian mm -hmm. Sharp is our guest today. He's the Director of Marine Mammal Rescue and Research. Uh, right whales are one of the most endangered whales, in fact, one of the most endangered species out there. And I know, Brian, there's a lot of controversy uh, up in Maine 
with the lobster, uh, lobster men, lobster women, uh, in terms of restricting lobster fishing activities because of whale entanglement, and this was caught up in the legal world now with the courts intervening. Can you talk about that issue? Absolutely. And just to clarify, we're actually looking at ways to make it so that those restrictions don't apply because yes, that is one of the ways because the population of right whales is only about 340, it's estimated 340. 340 and individuals in the world. For North Atlantic right whales, that's My right. My goodness, wow. Uh, estimated to be only around uh, 70 or 80 adult females. So those are the ones that are producing the, the next generation. So we're in a very perilous uh, time right now. But what we're working with and working with other uh, NGOs and working with the fishing industry and working with the federal government is to try to very quickly come up with new ways for fishermen to fishers to fish so make it so that they can still make a living um, but whales can still use that habitat one great example is here when i mentioned right whales are here end of march uh, to early april fishing is closed in massachusetts state waters especially cape cod bay so fishermen are stuck at the dock so one of the ways to be able to address that is through ropeless fishing. So figuring out ways that fishermen can fish, still make that living, but that there aren't those lines that I mentioned earlier that a whale runs into or gets um, entangled in its mouth as it's going by and feeding. How do you catch a lobster without the line going down to the lobster truck? That's and that's the really where the innovation has stepped up. So you get all kinds. You we've got engineers, fishermen, all looking at. There's actually several different ways of doing it, and just like there are several different, you know, the the habitat for fishing uh, all along the East Coast and New England is very diverse. And so there's solutions that are coming up. Everything from lift bags that can be be deployed acoustically. Um, to line and buoy that's wrapped into the first part of the trap and that can be released acoustically. So fisherman goes up, um, basically a tone or signal is played and um, from their vessel they basically hit a button and the line or the, um, the inflatable bag will lift that first trap to the surface. Wow, that is so, so interesting. 340 right whales left and your efforts to uh, try to save them and work with the industry so people can still make a living is is really quite fascinating. We're talking with Brian Sharp. Brian is the Director of Marine Mammal Rescue and Research for the National Fund for Animal Welfare, and he's based out of the Cape. When we come back, Brian, I want to talk get back to this disentangling whales and ask and, and talk about is there this emotional connection, I don't want to say spiritual, but but some sort of a relationship that you develop with a uh, an animal as smart as a whale as you're helping it to 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 live to survive so stick with us we're talking with Brian Sharp marine mammal rescue that's great american whale that's great american whale some say they saw him at the great lakes some say they saw him off of florida more Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are 
oppressors that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Introducing You Choose Rewards, the free debit card rewards program that rewards you every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. Just use your Greenfield Savings Bank Debit MasterCard to make purchases and you'll earn rewards points every time. You'll even earn You Choose Rewards with your mobile wallet, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, or PayPal, when you link your GSB Debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards can be redeemed for dining, shopping, traveling, cashback, donations, and more. Just go to our website and sign up for you choose rewards for your gsb debit mastercard it's free not a gsb customer yet just stop in any of our offices or open a new gsb checking account online and you'll find out how rewarding banking locally with greenfield savings can be get a 1000 you choose points bonus good for a 10 dollars reward when you sign up during june at greenfield savings bank member fdic member dif greenfieldsavings.com see bank for details have you heard of the Living Building Challenge? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst invites you to explore a revolutionary new kind of building, generating its own electricity and using only water collected on site from rain. The Hitchcock Center is our region's first public environmental education center, demonstrating the highest standard of sustainable design. Come visit us. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit HitchcockCenter.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our Science and Sensibility segment with Brian Adams, who has with him and us today a very special guest, another Brian. Brian, uh, Brian the first, please. Brian the first to Brian the second, or should we reverse them? Brian Sharp, uh, working to rescue sea mammals off the coast, the coast uh, with the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Uh, Brian, we're so interested in the studio here with this issue of disentanglement of whales. It's just such a fascinating topic. And first I want to, so here's a whale. It's a very smart animal. You're working to disentangle it, maybe to give it antibiotics, maybe to treat it. Tell us about the, is there a relationship during that, I assume, a some sort of period of time between you and that animal that develops. Do you think the animal knows that you are helping it, that it's being rescued? That's a, a very interesting question, and and one that is is hard to put a, a simple answer to. Um, you know, always keeping in mind these are wild animals, and these are in these are wild animals that are in great distress and incredible pain. Um, and so, you know, when vessels approach you know whether it's a large whale whether it's a seal um you know they know that they're in pain they're feeling that pain and then suddenly we're going up and through the course of disentanglement have to handle those lines that are causing them the pain which adds to that so it's um very hard to say um it is really hard to say what those animals emotions are sometimes my dog I, i have a hard time figuring out what she's thinking and i live with her all the time so um yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that um, whenever we're training responders, we always say, um, we always have them keep in mind that these are wild animals and they, they are in great distress um, while we're trying to help them. So it's difficult to, to say. Specifics of disentanglement. You approach, uh, let's, let's say it's a whale, it's entangled in fishing gear. Uh, 
what is, how does it work? How do you disentangle it? No matter what the animal is that we're trying to disentangle, uh, it is always the, the first job is to be able to control the gear, basically be able to uh, find some way, whether it's using a, um, you know, any of our special tools to be able to grab the line or gear that is entangling the animal. And so once we have that, then the team will stay at a safe distance, stay behind the animal, and then kind of read the animal's behavior. So, and the idea is that or what we do in practice is allow, look for opportunities to be able to make those cuts that are needed. Because the goal is to make as few cuts as possible to re be re able to release animals from their entanglement. And so that requires a lot of um, innovation and ingenuity as far as designing different tools. Um, what we need to be able to disentangle uh, marine animals can't be bought off the shelf. And so it's taking parts that are out there and creating new knives or um, creating uh, different other ways of restraining animals for the smaller animals. Larger whales, you're not going to be able to restrain them. So the techniques that are used for that are some of the techniques that were used by whalers um, to be able to keep those animals up, encourage those animals up to stay up on the surface so that disentanglement teams can disentangle them. Um. I was encouraging listeners uh, earlier in the show to go out to the Cape, to get on a whale watch, um, to go out to Stellwagen or George's Bank or wherever they can get to, to watch this remarkable feeding activity of some of the, the larger whales. Is that ethical? I mean, are we loving whales too much by getting all these boats out there? Uh, I think of our national parks where you know, you're in a, tra a traffic jam and what's, what's it doing to the wildlife? Is, it, oh, it, uh, are, is whale watching okay for the whales? That's a great question. It's something that there's been a lot of effort to look at and it can and is done correctly and done in the best uh, aspect and best interest of the whales as far as maintaining distance, not getting between mother and calf pairs. Uh, one of the things we do caution and you guys remember uh, last year you heard a lot of, about this, some of juvenile humpbacks that went into places like Boston Harbor and that was very unique. Um, so we do always encourage recreational boaters to to stay at a safe distance, to you know, look from a distance because these whales are very fast. Uh, they're very unpredictable. You know, we only see them when they hit the surface. So there's you know below the surface most of the time, so they can very easily pop up next to the boat. And these are animals that weigh 30 tons. Um, so when you match that to a 19-foot Boston whaler, um, you need people to to be careful and be safe around whales. So that's reassuring to know that it's okay to be out there on a whale watch and uh, and really supporting some of the research that's going on. Bill, you got a question? Uh, Brian Sharp, Director of the Marine Mammal Rescue and Research for the International Fund for Animal Welfare. I'd like to know, how big are these whales? How much do they weigh? Uh, depends on the whale. Um, some of our smaller whales, like minke whales, um, would be anywhere from about 12,000 to... Um, probably most 16,000 pounds. But when you get to the larger adult right whales, then you're talking about animals that are about 40 tons. And so big part uh, of the what? We, for, 40 tons. So 80,000 pounds. So yeah, it's That's a big it, animal. It requires a lot. One of the mandates that we have our team, we handle necropsy. So when whales are found dead, um, it is our job 
to lead the team that goes out there under our federal permits to be able to do a necropsy or an animal autopsy on these animals. And that means bringing those animals ashore if they're found offshore. And so uh, just to put it in perspective, we have specially made ropes to be able to drag a 40 ton whale up the beach. And when you're doing that, it typically takes two bulldozers and sometimes even a front end loader in tandem just to pull this animal up the beach to give it perspective. It takes a team of about 22 of us um, and it will take all day for that team to be able to do that examination. At, also while using heavy equipment such as an excavator. Wow, that would be a but sight to see. All important. Be, oh. Dragging a dead whale up the beach to do a necropsy with a bulldozer. Wow, there's a, there's a story there. Um, Brian, threats to marine mammals. Uh, what are they and what can we as uh, concerned mammal lovers do about it? That's a great question. And one of the biggest uh, but hardest to deal with directly um, is the fact that the Gulf of Maine uh, is one of the fastest warming bodies of water in the world. And so that is causing animals to shift behavior. But there's other things that can be done. Um, I, we spoke earlier about uh, innovating and the new types of on-demand fishing gear, also called ropeless gear, that are coming out. So that is available to fishermen. Um, vessels, um, you know, we talked about recreational vessels. Um, slowing down when, when animals are present, keeping a good lookout because vessel strikes um, are very, um, you know, very impactful on these animals, especially the calves. And, you know, in, in cases where our team has had to go and necropsy right whale calves that have been struck by vessels. That's that's really tough. That is incredible. It, it's always tough, but uh, that that hits even deeper. Yeah. It's Dan. Um, I wanted to know about microplastics. We've been reading a lot about that in the news. Is that dangerous? Um, it is definitely something that is being monitored and concerned, and we are watching closely as far as the impacts that it has on animals. Um, you know, it's the, the challenges is that these are in the environment now. We want to try to avoid adding more to the environment, um, but we're still learning about the impacts that it, it will have on these animals and and from a conservation um, effort, uh, what this will affect, this will have on populations. Uh, unfortunately, we are running out of time. We haven't even started to talk about baby seals. Um, Brian, how can people get involved? <coughs> excuse me with the International Fund for Animal Welfare? Uh, great question. So if you uh, visit our website at ifaw.org, um, you'll find links there to um, our stranding program that operates here on the Cape. And we do have uh, volunteers. We are uh, started as a grassroots um, organization doing stranding response. Um, so we do have volunteers. And actually in August, we'll be opening a short-term dolphin, uh, short-term intensive care unit in Orleans, Massachusetts for dolphins. It'll be the first of its kind. Cape's very special because we have such, uh, we have the highest frequency of dolphin strandings of any location in the world. We've been talking with Brian Sharp. He is the Director of Marine Mammal Rescue and Research for the International Fund for Animal Welfare. You can visit their website at the ifaw.org um, and look at the remarkable work that they do, not just on the Cape, but internationally in terms of helping green mammals um, do their thing. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate you and the efforts um, that your organization does to protect critters that are so 
amazing and just such a um, an, an incredible presence on our planet. My pleasure. And Thanks, Brian, Brian and Brian Adams, we want to thank you for bringing for bringing Brian Sharp on the show. Uh, Brian Sharp again is the director of Marine Mammal Rescue and Research. It's been a fascinating segment. It is Science and Sensibility with Brian Adams on Talk the Talk. We'll be right back. Out in the deep blue sea Sometimes I get that feeling That same old whale tells what I mean You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMB News, I'm Jess Tyler. UMass Amherst will pay the town approximately $5.5 million under the terms of a new contract to provide coverage for the nearly 30,000 students attending the university. Included in the strategic partnership deal is $700,000 annually for emergency medical and fire services and $200,000 a year for the cost of educating children of employees who live in tax-exempt housing. The deal will also make retroactive payments to the town going back to July 2022. Amherst Town officials are fighting back against accusations there was racial bias in the distribution of ARPA funds. The Black Business Association of the Amherst area contends there has not been fairness in how the money has been distributed. The group spoke at a Monday night council meeting saying they were embarrassed by how the town discriminates against black-owned businesses. Town manager Paul Bachelman denied the accusations, providing charts showing that 55% of small business grants went to black, indigenous, and people of color-owned businesses. Three New York men are facing multiple charges following two car chases in New Hampshire and Greenfield after an alleged armed robbery incident yesterday in Keene. The pursuit began around 8.30 a.m. Officers located suspects on Route 9 and a car chase began at speeds of up to 100 miles per hour. Massachusetts State Police located the vehicle on I-91 in Greenfield where a second chase began. Troopers ahead of the chase placed three deflation devices and they were hit by the suspect's vehicle. The vehicle was found near GCC. All three suspects were found in the woods with the help of the canine unit and will be in Greenfield District Court. Mixture of sun and clouds today, mostly dry, just the chance for a widely scattered shower this afternoon, a high of 80 to 84. Scattered clouds dry tonight, evening temperatures in the 70s, an overnight low of 58 to 64. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, a high of 84 to 88. Looks like showers are back second half of the day on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. The Branford Marsalis Quartet plays a kaleidoscopic range of jazz and popular classics. They're on their way to UMass, a theatrical concert-style show that chronicles the journey shared by Paul and Artie. The Simon and Garfunkel story is coming to UMass. The UMass Fine Arts Center season. Tickets are on sale now. America's premier flamenco dance company, Flamenco Vivo Carlotta Santana. UMass alum Stephen Kellogg reads from his book, Objects in the Mirror, and performs favorite songs. The UMass Fine Arts Center. Dance, classical, jazz, 
theater, and performances you just can't categorize. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the complete calendar. The new season is here. Get your tickets now. For complete contest rules for WHMP, please visit WHMP's website at whmp.com and click on the Contest and Rules tab. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford, Sundays at noon, 1015-1400-WHMP. Welcome back to the show. We are here with Ruth Griggs. She is the segment host for All That Jazz here on Talk the Talk. She is, for those of our listeners who don't know, but I think most do now, know Ruth Griggs. She is the president of Northampton Jazz Festival and as well on the steering committee and a singer with Valley Jazz Voices. Ruth Griggs has with her and us today, as she often does, a very special guest and a very talented one. Ruth Griggs, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Uh, yes, I am thrilled to finally have on the show someone who I've needed to have on the show for some time, but with the Max Roach Centennial Concert coming up at the Northampton Jazz Festival on September 30, that was, that was really the punch that I needed to get Andy Jaffe on as our guest, who is a composer, an arranger, an educator, an author, and I'm very grateful, is also an advisor. Let's just call him. He's an overachiever. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> an advisor to the Northampton Jazz Festival, and um, as is always the case when I have a guest on the show, I am honored and humbled by the background of my guests, and Andy is way up on top of that list. The, the, the amount of talent and gifts to the jazz world, and I, when I say world, I mean around the world, that this man has, has provided is just, it's, it's, in, it's, it's staggering. Yeah, Andy so Jaffe, Andy, he's thank a, you for he's being a superstar. here today. He, he, <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> no, but, but you are, you are, I mean. Um, well, and, and, and again, what is lovely to be able to say is that Andy also spent um, his graduate years at UMass Amherst in that, music, that jazz music department. And once again, we just have this incredible talent here because of that program, which may not be a bad place to start, Andy. Sure. Well, as, you, as we've discussed, it was my honor to be in the UMass uh, African American Music and Jazz program in the 70s, and uh, with classmates like Avery Sharp, who I know you've had in here, my good friend, and uh, many other great musicians. And, um, you know, I wound up being Max Roach's teaching assistant and working closely with him, and eventually writing some music for his double quartet. Uh, Which we will be hearing. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was an inspiration in so many ways, but mostly to 
you know, we were all young and naive, of course, but he had, you know, obviously a person of great achievement and experience and who uh, never let us forget the obligation that we had to, um, to talk about uh, the history of the music and connect what we were doing to the history and the spirit of the music and, and also someone who taught us how to uh, stand firm to our convictions in the face of a lot of resistance because, you know... Not just you, What Matt. year is that? When you say 1977. A lot of re- 1977. Yeah, I was, And the resistance looked like what? Well, I mean, it was, I was about to say, it's not unique to UMass that it, to this day we still struggle. And Max, again, has been an inspiration. I think of what he had to go through. And we still advocate relentlessly for the inclusion of jazz in the curriculum for music people generally. I mean, I still teach in a graduate school, and I'm emeritus at Williams, and I have had many occasions to see people come out of the academic mill with doctorates who've never heard even a measure of Duke Ellington's music. And so we have to really work hard to uh, make sure that that changes because, you know, our educational system is based on very, very strong Eurocentric bias, and it always has been. And you have to call it what it is and challenge it. Well, and, and when you, you mentioned, you know, I talked about the, that you were at the jazz program at UMass Amherst in the 70s, late 70s, and, and I think you've kind of corrected me to say, no, it was the African-American music well, department at UMass. And having listened to a podcast uh, that Tom Reaney did an interview with Max Roach in 79 last night, Max Roach had trouble describing what it was like to try to establish um, a, a black, you know, a, a, an African American music department at UMass. So, can you talk a little bit about, like, take us back to that time? Oh my God! Well, okay, so you have to understand, this is like forty-five years ago, and my memory ain't what it used to be. So, apologies for any discrepancies with with facts. Uh, that but actually your experience, your yeah, experience. my experience was that. First of all, uh, I was blessed to be there at a time when there were mentors available to us like Billy Taylor and, and uh, Youssef Latif and Archie Shep and some of the cohort of people Dr. like... Dr. Tillis? Yes, of course. I'm getting to... And Fred Tillis was sort of the funnel through which all of these people arrived and he, he was a very important force in the development of the music department. And uh, he too, you know... Fred and I were very close, and uh, he too struggled on an ongoing basis and often bemoaned the fact that there was so much resistance to the inclusion of black music in the curriculum there. And it was, uh, it was, you know, it was not unique in that regard, but it was, we were part of, guys, I guess in retrospect, we were part of a kind of a national effort to uh, change the perception that people had about jazz as what style of music. You know, Duke Ellington has, he's my favorite quote. He said, there's only two kinds of music, good music and the other kind. <laughs> and uh, because this categorization that we do is very harmful. I still see it when I teach overseas. There's still this bifurcation of quote-unquote classical and quote-unquote jazz, and they're not sharing resources, and they're not sharing people, and it's just wasteful, and it leads to a lot of uninformed students. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can I just make a comment? This is Dan. I just find it amazing that UMass, Western Massachusetts, not in an urban area, had so many great jazz artists come to yeah. UMass. I just find that, yeah. Can I talk about that history please, a bit? Please, sure. please. 
Okay, so as far as the history, so there's a little bit uh, personal here. Um, so my dad came to UMass to teach in the geology department in 1965. And I remember that it was quite a controversy that there were absolutely no black faculty anywhere on UMass, or virtually very few, and certainly not in the music department. So it's in that context that Fred Tillis is so important because he brought all these people here. And it was a unique environment. I mean, you look at those names and that experience and the opportunity to speak with, with Max Roach and, and, uh, and uh, so certainly Yusef Latif. I mean, Horace Boyer, Billy Taylor, what a generous man he was. He was really, really helpful to everyone. And these people were all right here in the same environment. It was kind of incredible in retrospect to think about that. And you can't get that from, I'm not going to mention names of other uh, institutions, <coughs> but you're just not going to get that anymore because that generation is gone. And their reaction to being in that environment and their experience that they brought to it was totally different than what might happen today with the generation of musicians who populate academe today, who, many of whom are great musicians, but it's just not the same. And if I could just make a quick comment on that, imagine if the administration had worked well with them, brought them in, what they could have harnessed for long term and keep developing that instead of having this acrimonious relationship, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. you could have been developing that, yeah. harnessing that, and really bringing that in when you knew you had something special. Because you've been talking about these names in the jazz world that you've been talking about for weeks here, Ruth. And it's just like, imagine if you had a collaborative relationship. What else do you need? What kind of money do you need? Yeah. Well, how is this going to build well, you up? Over time, over time, of course, these relationships changed, and changed, and I would never say it was um, acrimonious. In fact, there were good interpersonal relationships between people on the faculty in the Euros European side of things and the jazz thing. People got along well, but it was just an institutional thing. You know, when you're in an institution like that, I found this out many years later too at Williams as well. You've got all kinds of entrenched interests. You've got budgets to deal with. If you want to add someone to the faculty, it can be a big, long process, and it can be complicated. And so there are institutional obstacles to progress that are kind of built into academe. Yes, but I, I, I do think that, thank goodness, um, the jazz musicians and, and folks like you, Andy, pushed it through. You know, that Max Roach, you know, having seen that film a couple of weeks ago, Max Roach, the drum also waltzes that the jazz festival sponsored. He had a lot of anger in him. He was a very, he, yes. one comment that his son made on the film, which was by Sam Pollard. Right. Um, um, is that he said, if his father, his father said to me, Max Roach said to me, dad said to me one day, if I didn't have drumsticks, I would have guns. That's how angry he was. And, right, yeah. and Abby Lincoln, who Max Roach went on to marry, got so upset and distressed by the degree of anger that he wanted her to convey in the music mm -hmm. that it, it, it kind of it, it deteriorated their relationship. Well, so there, there was a lot of... There was a there was a lot of, of, of tough stuff going on there to push the music forward, right. let alone in the environment of the right. civil rights right. issues of Well, the time. if you just think about what it was like, some of the exclusionary things that happened, not just in academic music, but throughout the larger world of music performance and in the context of society, I always tell my students, you know, I remember one time we brought Bramford, who was one of my former students, to Williams, and 
in an improv class, he stopped the class and he, he, he started to scold them. He's good at that. He says, you know, if you guys want to sound like Coltrane, it's not enough to listen to Coltrane. You have to listen to what he listened to. So what's mm. the message there? Cultural context. It's, music doesn't happen in a, in a vacuum. That kind of anger doesn't happen in a vacuum either. There has to be something to provoke it in the way people are treated. And, uh, you know, he reflected that. Max, Max did have a temper. Um, that was okay. He was honest and he was straightforward in a way that people in academe often aren't and need to be more. Well, I, I, I want to just make a little segue um, to the inspiration that you um, had from folks like Max Roach in your compositions. Andy Jaffe is a longtime composer, has written books on uh, composing, and has uh, many, many CDs as not only a leader but as a composer. One of them is ARC, uh, which uh, we will we will be listening to the um, introduction of the, of a piece called Steve Biko, um, and I want to just have you talk for a minute okay. about Steve Biko and this piece that is on his album Arc, um, and what inspired you. Yeah, and help us understand this sure. piece a little bit. So the Steve Biko and theme for the new '60s are pieces that I wrote uh, for Max's double quartet. You know, because uh, after finishing at UMass and beginning to teach at Berkeley, I stayed in touch and I managed to insinuate myself into a, one of his performances with his double quartet and it was quite exciting. Of course, the pieces are written to feature his prowess, which is to say they aren't necessarily in 4-4 and they're very full of energy, you know, and they have a political undertone too. Um, so Steve Biko, Max made us aware of the, really was talking a lot about the struggle in South Africa, and Steve Biko was a student leader in the South African Civil Rights Movement who was a martyr to that cause and died in prison in South Africa. And so I, this piece is sort of directly inspired by Max, but the, uh, the, the uh, bass line that you hear in the beginning is, is all 12-tone, which is a, sort of an... Uh, a, kind of a representation of European, you know, quote-unquote art music or new music. Um, I don't like the term art music, and I don't like the term serious music, just for the record. And um, in any event, so the 12-tone rows that create the bass ostinato are supposed to be his prison, and then the soloing is free within that. With So I, I tell the musicians t that, too, before a performance or before a uh, recording, I say, look, you know, the point is... There's this restriction that you're stuck in this prison. It's symbolized by these bass lines and so on. And um, your, um, your, your solo is your reaction to it. You're supposed to be... Well, and we're going to hear, yeah. we're gonna hear um, a first clip of that, which is the introduction with a drum solo. Max Roaches, of course, uh, is a famous drummer. A drum solo um, by Jonathan Barber. So take a listen. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. J.D. Power's latest initial quality study shows a troubling trend in the auto industry. Buyers are increasingly reporting trouble with new cars and trucks. Part of the trend might be explained by the auto industry's growing use of technology, specifically in infotainment systems. Windows users now have some of the same privacy protections as Mac users because DuckDuckGo has rolled out its new browser. The company claims its alternative to Google Search and Chrome won't track you, plus it can block other companies from tracking you as well. Domino's is making it easier to have a pizza delivered. Now you don't even have to give them an address. The company says it can deliver a pizza to a customer when they are at the beach or at a campground. Customers show their location using a map that's in the Domino's app. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our segment, All That Jazz. Ruth Griggs has with her today a very special guest, Andy Jaffe. Ruth? Yes, and we just listened to um, a, a little cut from one of his composition, one of Andy's compositions, Steve Biko, and I just wanted to um, remind people that that Andy Jaffe was the um, founded the jazz program at Williams College in the Department of Music, and was the director of that jazz program for thirty years. Uh, and um, after retiring, one of the things that he had become involved with. Was, was performing and working with musicians in Taipei, at the University of Taipei. And we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I find that so fascinating to, to jump from, from the beautiful bucolic hills of Williamstown, Massachusetts, to, to Taipei. Tell us a bit about that, Andy. Well, um, it's really nice place to be. People are incredibly well-educated and peaceful and you know, the, there's no snow and there's no crime. And uh, a lot of the musicians there, a lot of my colleagues there are American educated or they're educated in Europe. So there's some very fine jazz musicians there. I can have a band playing my own music over there. There's started a big band over there that continues under someone else's leadership at this point. And uh, yeah, it's a great place to be. The thing that I notice most about being in, in Asia, but particularly in Taipei, I suppose, is that there's a different... Uh, you're treated differently as an older person than you would be in this country. You the know. Asian, right, the uh, Asian Yeah, the culture. whole idea of, you know, you have a lot of experience that's valuable as opposed to, you know, you're over 60, so here's your ticket to the nursing home. 
Right. That does feel good, especially upon retirement, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk yeah, about yeah. a second career. Well, it's nice to, you know, it's all continuous. For musicians, it's always continuous because you're always leading bands and writing music and traveling around doing different things while you're working full-time. So you can stop working full-time at an institution and still be able to do these things. And so you're continuing to write music? Yeah, I am. I'm kind of in a... Well, I'll be honest with you. I've been in a little bit of a rut since COVID, as a lot of people have, and I had a little illness in there that I'm past now, but it's the same kind of... Uh, it's, I'm, I'm in restart mode right now, to be honest. So restart means, means new creativity coming out of Andrew Jaffe, I which hope is so. which is a, a great thing to see. And, and we're, we're so happy that you are a part of this community still and uh, an advisor to the Northampton Jazz Festival. And I just want to remind people again that, um, that we are celebrating the centennial of the, the famous bebop jazz drummer Max Roach on uh, Saturday, September 30. Um, at the Academy of Music, which with the, the Max Roach Centennial Quintet, which will be led by Joe Farnsworth, um, who is a, 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 an aficionado of Max Roach and, a, and, and someone that, that just loves Max Roach, and his quintet, which includes Christian Sands on piano, Jeremy Pelt on trumpet, very special guest George Coleman on saxophone, um, and of course Joe Farnsworth on drums. So uh, get your tickets at the Academy of Music for that concert. We are going to close um, with another section from Steve Biko, which is the composition on Andy Jaffe's uh, record entitled Ark. And this is sort of the lyrical um, uh, section of the piece that evokes Max Roach um, with Clifford Brown. Take a listen, and thank you, Andy. This has been All That Jazz with Ruth Griggs and her very special guest, Andy Jaffe. We want to thank them for being with us and you today, and we want to thank all of you for being with us. This has been Talk the Talk. Please remember to walk the walk. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. Looking to take a little breather from the news? We don't blame you. Why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station? It's the music you grew up with. WHMP and the news will be right here when you get back. The Valley's Pure Oldies. 
96.9 and 100. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. 